return to the conclusion of Kings of the Hill, South, the nation of Judah. We're going to look at eight kings, more accurately, four kings and four kings on strings, puppet kings of Egypt and Babylonia. We'll look at two of Judah's best kings and the worst of the worst sandwiched in between. First, we start with Hezekiah. Hezekiah ruled for 29 years. He comes to power at the time Israel's being destroyed by Assyria. God viewed Hezekiah as a very good king, partly for his heart and partly for the actions of his hands. Hezekiah had a God-honoring heart, and that God-honoring heart issued in the works of his hands. He began to clean house in Judah, removing the shrines, the idolatrous worship centers. We're told one thing he removed was the bronze serpent Moses made in the book of Numbers. Do you remember that? Over the centuries, it had transformed from a reminder of God's amazing deliverance from this plague to an object of idol worship. So Hezekiah did the only wise thing. He ground it to powder. Holding fast to his God, he purged the nation of Judah. Meanwhile, having conquered Israel, Assyria turns their focus toward Hezekiah's kingdom, Judah. At first, Hezekiah buys Judah time by paying Assyria a tribute of silver and gold, some of which he stripped off the temple. Assyria wasn't satisfied. They come back and settle outside the walls of Jerusalem. Sennacherib, Assyria's leader, starts to talk his smack toward Hezekiah and more so toward Hezekiah's God. Hey, I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can find riders to put on them. He further says, in the hearing of all the people of Jerusalem, God sent me to destroy you. Then he adds, look around you. Have you been reading the news? No God has delivered any nation from my hand, and yours can either. When Hezekiah gets this information, he has a humble conversation with the God of Israel. Are you hearing this, Lord? You know, he's right with his facts, but are you going to let him say these things about you? Isaiah the prophet comes and gives Hezekiah God's answer. We'll be studying Isaiah in the next episode. He's going to leave his position and go back home. But before he leaves, he sends another little note to Hezekiah. It contains a bunch of additional Hezekiah and God smack. This time, Hezekiah lays this letter out before the Lord and he prays. Again, he reminds the Lord, he's right about us, but are you going to let him talk that way about you? And again, God sends Isaiah with his response. Isaiah says, tell Sennacherib, you've insulted the Holy One of Israel. The God of Israel says, Sennacherib, you've just been my pawn, my errand boy to discipline the nations. After delivering God's response, that night, the angel of the Lord visits Sennacherib's camp. It's deja vu of the last plague of Egypt. 185,000 troops wake up dead. Sennacherib slouches home, and a few days or weeks later, worshiping in the house of his God, two of his sons come in and assassinate him. Near the end of Hezekiah's life, he becomes sick. Again, the prophet Isaiah comes to him and says, I'd get your house in order, you're going to die. Hezekiah, we're told, in his bed turns his face to the wall and weeps. Isaiah hasn't even left the palace grounds when God says, Go back and give Hezekiah this message. You're going to be healed and get 15 more years of life. This is one of those times you wish God had answered no to his prayer. Because what happens in those next 15 years have tragic consequences on the nation of Judah. 
First of all, shortly thereafter, people from Babylon, a nation that's growing in strength, show up to pay their respects to sick Hezekiah. They schmooze and flatter him. So Hezekiah gives them a tour of Jerusalem, his palace and the temple. Isaiah comes to him and says, What's up with those guys who just left? Where are they from and what were they doing here? They're nice guys. They're from Babylon. And I just showed them around. What did you show them? Isaiah asked. I showed them pretty much everything. Isaiah the prophet then says, That was a bad idea. Know this. One day soon, they'll come back to Jerusalem. This time, they'll go home with hands full. Everything we have in Jerusalem will be carried off. And your kids, they too will be carried off and made eunuchs in the palace of Babylon. How King Hezekiah responds to this news is so disappointing. Well, at least this won't happen in my lifetime. Ouch. There's one more tragic thing that happens in those 15 years of additional life. He fathers Manasseh. We know this because we're told Manasseh became king when he was 12 years old and he ruled 55 years. Manasseh is the undisputed worst king of the southern hill Judah. When you look at what he did in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, it's as if this teenager sat down and made a bulleted list of all his dad's good accomplishments to honor God in Judah. Then, one by one, he checks them off as he reverses those decisions. He reinstalls the sex and religion cults, he rebuilds the pagan altars and puts one in the temple. He has a special image of Asherah carved and places it prominently in the temple. He's into black magic and seances, and he burns his own son in the ovens to the god Moloch. The final verdict, he was an indiscriminate murderer. He filled Jerusalem with the blood of innocent people. He's called the Killer King, like the Pied Piper, he led the people of Jerusalem and Judah to follow him. Together, they set new records in evil. God is gracious and compassionate, but he cannot, he will not let the guilty go unpunished. His only course of action is Judah and Jerusalem need to be seriously disciplined. And so, in a rerun of Samaria, Jerusalem and Judah are doomed to be destroyed. God describes what will happen as a woman dumping scraps off of a plate. Second King says the rest of the acts of Manasseh are written in the chronicles of the kings of Israel. Here's one of those places you just have to go to Second Chronicles to read what the rest of those acts are. This is one of my favorite stories in all of scripture. Second Chronicles tells us Manasseh was hauled off as a hostage to Babylon. There in confinement, we're told he humbled himself and deeply repented before God, and that God, through the king of Babylon, restored him to the throne in Jerusalem. Second Chronicles chapter 33 tells us, for the last five to six years of his life, he did everything he could to set right for God and his people, all the things that he had set so very wrong in his long reign as the killer king. I have a sneaking suspicion. One of the strongest things he did was spend those last few years bouncing his little grandson on his knee, his grandson, Josiah. We'll get to him in a moment. The third king, Manasseh's son, was Ammon. He was 22 when he became king, and he ruled for two years. He was evil like his dad, Manasseh, and that he totally deserted the god of his ancestors. 
his servants assassinate him in his own palace. Then we get to our fourth king, Ammon's son, Josiah. Josiah was only eight when he was made king. Subtract the two years that Ammon, his dad, was on the throne. Little Josiah had the opportunity to be on Grandpa Manasseh's lap for his first six years. I don't know any other way this little boy could have a heart for God like Josiah did. Josiah's name means fire of God and fire refines. Made king when he was only eight, he rules for 31 years. And really, he's the last king of the southern kingdom who's not a king on a string, a puppet. We're told he had David's heart, and he tore down the idols all over Judah. He also had a passion to repair God's house. He set people to work doing that very thing. And during the course of renovation, they found a scroll hidden perhaps behind the wall. The temple workers bring this scroll to King Josiah. When they open it and begin reading it, they realize it is the book of the law of Moses. Josiah had never heard of such a book. What was to be their marching orders, their compass, their manifesto in following the God of Israel had been completely lost by this generation. Maybe over time it was lost. Or maybe during Manasseh, the killer king of Jerusalem, he purposely eradicated it. Maybe the scroll hidden in the temple was hidden from Manasseh. Josiah, when he hears these words, is utterly devastated. He seeks out a local prophetess, Huldah, asking her for guidance on what was to become of Judah, who hadn't kept a word of this law. Huldah reports to Josiah, It's not good. God's on his way to bring doom, judgment on Judah. God says, You've deserted me as a nation with idolatry. Judgment is rolling. It's unstoppable. But God sees you, Josiah. He sees your heart, and he'll delay it until you're dead. Josiah, the fire of God, the refiner, gets to work. He assembles the nation of Israel in Jerusalem. There, he reads the entire book of the law out loud to them. He summons, pleads with them to follow God's law. He continues by clearing out the temple of any remaining idolatry. He goes through the priests and fires those who are unauthorized according to the law. He throws the male prostitutes out of God's temple. Yes, you heard that right. It had come to that. He continues by demolishing that furnace for sacrificing children in the fire to Moloch. He smashes the altars Solomon built for his wives outside of Jerusalem. Then he goes to Bethel, to Jeroboam's altar. Do you remember, 300 years earlier, the prophet had approached Jeroboam and said, Someday God will raise up someone named Josiah who will burn the bones of the priests on this very altar. Now, 300 years later, that person, Josiah, digs up those bones of the priests and defiles the altar then destroys it. And when Josiah was finished refining Judah, he even goes to the ruins of the nation of Israel and finds idolatrous places and destroys them as well. Back in Jerusalem, Josiah then calls the people to celebrate the Passover. We're told in 2 Kings, the Passover had not been celebrated since the days of the judges. What? This was a bedrock command of God. Keep the Passover every year forever as a reminder of my saving work in Egypt. Here we are, perhaps six centuries later, and they hadn't kept it once. 
Second Chronicles chapter 35 tells us about that Passover. If you're still giving grades, over the life of King Josiah, God said, there was no king compared to him, either before or after. Josiah dies nobly, honorably, and also mercifully, for what's about to happen in Jerusalem and to the nation of Judah would break this man's heart. Josiah's son, Jehoahaz, becomes the new, quote, king, unquote. He only rules three months, and in fact, he doesn't really rule at all. Pharaoh Necho captures him, requires him to pay silver and gold as tribute, and then carts him off to Egypt. In what little time he was hanging around Jerusalem, he was an evil king, reverting to the evil of his fathers. Pharaoh Necho makes his brother, Eliakim, the next king on a string. He changes his name to Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim, the second king on a string, is 25 when he's placed as king by Egypt. He serves for 11 years. God's verdict? He's an evil king. He's really a puppet. Then, because of Egypt being routed in the Battle of Carchemish, he becomes Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon's puppet. During the rest of his reign, God allows raiding bands of various nations to nibble away at Judah. The third puppet king is Jehoiakim. He serves for three months as well, and he's declared by God to be evil. During this time, Nebuchadnezzar puts Jerusalem under siege. Jehoiakim surrenders and is taken prisoner. It's at this time... The word of the prophet to Hezekiah is fulfilled. Everything of value is hauled off to Babylon. Nearly all the people are hauled away as prisoner. To rule over the few people of Judah that are left, Nebuchadnezzar puts Mataniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, in as puppet governor and changed his name to Zedekiah, our fourth king on a string. Zedekiah, their puppet, rules for 11 years. God calls him a carbon copy of the evil king Jehoiakim. Can you believe it? Even after being destroyed as punishment from God, he still holds on to his evil ways. Somewhere near the end of his puppet reign, he revolts against the king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar comes quickly with an army. He puts Jerusalem under siege for 19 months. Finally, the famine is so extreme, Zedekiah, his sons, and some of the army make a break for it in the middle of the night. They head in the darkness toward the Jordan, but are caught. Zedekiah's sons are put to death before his eyes, and then the Babylonians pluck out his eyes. Can you imagine? The last thing you see on this planet are your sons being slain. He's then hauled off to Babylon, perhaps as a trophy or an example. Then Nebuchadnezzar's troops return to Jerusalem. What took Solomon years to build, the city, the palaces, the temple, took the angry Babylonians only a few days to destroy. The temple was burned. The city was destroyed. The walls were crumbled. All the precious metals left, like bronze, gold, and silver plating on things like the pillars of the temple, were stripped off. The people that survived, they took into exile, other than just a few farmers, to tend the remaining vineyards that hadn't been destroyed. As they headed east, there was nothing left of Jerusalem but a pile of rubble on a hill. There's one more leader name mentioned in what used to be Judah, his name is Gedaliah. He's a puppet governor of Babylon. We're told the few stragglers left back there murdered him as a traitor along with any Babylonian representatives. And then they escaped, of all places, to Egypt. We've come full circle. Ironic. So we get to the end of Second Kings. The ten northern tribes are no more. The two southern tribes are now exiled in Babylon. 
The special land God promised is laid waste. God really didn't have any other choice. He'd done everything he could, including sending waves of prophets, playground attendants, to warn these kings and the people of Judah. We've already looked at two, Joel and Micah. God had saved some extraordinary prophets for last. Isaiah, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Jerry, and Zeke. And we'll look at those amazing playground attendants and their sticky note messages in our next word pictures.